Welcome to the Ark Insider. It's still pretty new and we're feeling our way, but we're delighted you can join us. I'm Karen Allen and I'll be indulging in some informal Africa-focused conversation with Tara O'Connor, the Managing Director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting. The Ark Insider offers insightful, inspired and thought-provoking exchanges about the African continent by those who live, work and breathe African affairs. Consider it a virtual fireside chat where we get to mull over the topics trending on the continent. Tara, it's good to see you again. Very good to be on a Zoom call with you again, Karen. Yeah, we're managing to maintain social distance, aren't we? I mean, the amazing wonders of super modern technology that uh, it seems that my entire life has been taken over by Zoom. Zoom conferences, Zoom gym, Zoom everything, in fact. A nice plug for Zoom. Other, uh, other, <laughs> other things are also available or whatever it is they say. Exactly. Well, look, to be serious for a moment, the coronavirus, of course, remains the main story of the day. So that continues to be our focus. A little later, we'll be talking to our special guest about corruption and the ever more powerful state in the context of the virus. But first, a recap of just a few of the stories that we've seen in the news recently. Cyril Ramaphosa has announced a partial reopening of Africa's most advanced economy from the start of next month. Recovery of economic activity. With no silver bullet to knock out the coronavirus, President Trump is suggesting medical experts look into exposing the human body to light and heat as a possible treatment. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. Madagascan President Andrei Rajolina has officially launched a medicine he believes can prevent and cure patients suffering from COVID-19. We are confronting one of the greatest challenges of our generation. We have to win this battle. We have to defeat the virus. A minute silence will be held this morning to honour key workers who've died from coronavirus. The Prime Minister will be among those taking part. It's still very chilling, isn't it? We hit the two million infection mark just last week. And although the African continent has not seen the spread in the same number as Europe and North America, there is still a palpable sense of anxiety here. Absolutely. Staying with some of the stories that made it into the news over the past week, one which really caught my eye, Tara, was this. The South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is leading the call for sanctions to be lifted in Sudan and Zimbabwe in order to ensure the best possible response and really the release of resources to tackle the corona pandemic. Um, it's interesting, uh, Ramaphosa speaking there as uh, current chair of the African Union. Um, do you think this is going to have much clout, given the fact that Sudan has already seen many of its sanctions lifted from the United States, uh, Zimbabwe less so. What's your response to that? Well, in Sudan, we've seen a complete transformation of the of political scene in, through popular protest as uh, as the resurgence of of the jasmine or arab spring has had an enormous political success in that country but no such um, transformation has taken place in zimbabwe 
at all. And it just seems over the past couple of years to be lurching from one crisis to another. And so the yep. COVID-19 uh, crisis is just throwing it into into further turmoil. In the IMF figures are quite extraordinary that um, Zimbabwe COVID-19 is going to see uh, the country's economy reverse by something like 6% on the back of a contraction of 8% last year. My best hope for Zimbabwe is that this crisis provokes improvement because the conditions in Zimbabwe for ordinary people can't really get worse. Interesting as well, just whilst we're on the topic of Zimbabwe, that, you know, in addition to heaping on the economic pressure, we're seeing a response by the Zimbabwean government cracking down on the media, cracking down on dissent. And there was a court case just last week in which the court actually wrapped the knuckles of the Zimbabwean state saying journalists must not be targeted and the situation must not be used as a pretext for singling out dissidents. That that has to give some hope that the courts are still able to make judgments like that. Actually, qu- quite surprising how uh, under Emerson Manangagwa, the courts are actually flexing their muscles more, um, more than ever. And it's a very, that is a very encouraging sign. On the debt relief thing, the biggest issue about debt relief for Zimbabwe is, is the uh, is the Americans' uh, uh, position on Zimbabwe, and Congress has actually passed an act that prevents the IMF from voting for debt relief for Zimbabwe. One hopes that the severity of the uh, of the coronavirus will actually see the U.S. Congress change that and bring some relief to ordinary Zimbabweans. Tara, thank you as always. Very interesting. Moving on. You're listening to The Arc Insider with me, Karen Allen in Johannesburg and Tara O'Connor in London. Today, our podcast is focusing on the response across Africa to the coronavirus. Now, 300 African civil society organisations are among a group of 600 to sign an open letter addressed to states appealing for legal, measured, proportional and time-bound measures in response to coronavirus. It comes amid growing concerns that some states are using the pandemic as a pretext for cracking down on dissent and expanding the reach of the state. Given the rapid spread of the virus globally, some surrender of liberty is arguably acceptable. But for how long? And will there be a legacy of a more controlling state in the wake of this global health crisis? Well, joining us live from Nairobi is John Githongo, former anti-corruption czar and whistleblower, and now the inspiration behind The Elephant, an online platform described as a place where activists can speak truth to power. Some very interesting articles on there, so I do encourage you to go and take a look. John, welcome to The Ark Insider. Thank you very much. Tara and I both know you through different incarnations over the years. Yes, it's great to have you on the podcast. We are still very small and beautifully formed, but we're, we're absolutely honoured that you've uh, got some time to spare with us. Very, very happy to be here. Very happy to be here. John, one of your op-eds describes how humanity is on trial at this moment. And we've heard about the civil society organisations that I've mentioned really flagging up the fact that there could be long-lasting concerns for governance across Africa if... They clamped down too hard. Do you think the continent's leaders have approached this in a humane way, by and large? Well, first of all, thank you very much for, for inviting me to uh, to the to the ARC. 
I think that across the continent, uh, you know, 50, you know 55, 55 different countries, um, different traditions, uh, different constitutions, uh, different types of regimes, but the overwhelming response given the limitations in state capacity. State capacity is not um, that strong or that developed compared to, to developed countries. Um, therefore, it's a highly securitized um, response across many African countries. You know, even in a country like Kenya that has a progressive constitution, uh, ultimately the most uh, striking test of whether that constitution, of how that constitution works for ordinary citizens is how the police interpret it. You can have a beautiful constitution, uh, but the, the ultimate interpreter is the person, is the official with, with great discretionary power um, interacting with ordinary citizens. And of course, uh, there have been excesses. Uh, we've had um, those at a point at which more, pe more, more people had been killed by the police than by coronavirus. And so that, that has been deeply un unfortunate as, as the, you know, as the government has, uh, has securitized this, this, uh, this response in the way it has. That is informed partly by its, its natural proclivities, but also, um, a lack of state capacity to do, uh, too much on the health side. It's interesting, though, John, that some countries have chosen to go down the state of emergency route, like Ethiopia, which brings with it very, very draconian powers. Uh, others, like South Africa, have introduced sort of disaster legislation, um, which has a, a very clear and defined end to it. Um, Kenya's got curfews in place. Do you think there has been some restraint, notwithstanding the points that you've made about extrajudicial force, extrajudicial executions in some case, which Kenya already has a problem with? Do you think there has been some restraint? I think so. I think there's been some restraint. Um, I mean, even the leaders who are implementing these measures are also very scared because they are in a highly exposed position. They see the British Prime Minister getting uh, infected with uh, coronavirus. They realize that, you know, they're part, the leaders themselves are part of uh, the, the group that is at a high risk of, of getting this. So that also informs um, their response. Um, states of emergency across sub-Saharan Africa are not popular. The history of states of emergency is, is, is a bad one. They come after coup d'etats or attempted coup d'etats. Um, you know, the, 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 the historical baggage of a state of emergency in most African countries is something that is very negative. Secondly, um, there's actually no need for it. And that's the reason civil society and uh, parts of the media have been in opposition to states of emergency. So the, the attitude is, hold on, um, we can actually respond to this crisis without constitutionalizing in, in that kind of dramatic way. I think the, the big concern is that some of the changes that are being made to respond to the crisis, uh, these changes tend to be resilient, that even after the crisis has been assuaged, the limitations on people's rights that have been introduced can have a tendency of hanging around. Yeah. The surveillance measures that the government is, is, governments are trying to implement, uh, these things have to have a tendency, you know, you, they need a bureaucracy to implement them. Climbing down from that is quite difficult. So the attitude is that we'd rather go with just disaster. You know, we've, we've had droughts, we've had famines, we've had Ebola, we've had... So we don't need to go the emergency route. 
I think I would agree wholeheartedly with you, John. It's very interesting that in Zambia, um, the uh, in Zambia we've seen the government um, not Im- deliberately not impose a state of emergency because, in fact, only. I think it was only two years ago, there was a partial state of emergency imposed for political reasons. And the backlash from that was quite substantial. The disaster law that is is in existence there already has got sufficient provision. But then again, you see in the Lusophone countries, both Mozambique and Angola have immediately imposed states of emergency. And with all the knock-on laws that that come come from that. Can I run something past both of you, actually? I wonder how fair is it to have a parallel with a state of terror, a state of terrorism? I mean, we've seen sort of very draconian laws being introduced in the wake of 9-11. The Patriot Act was introduced in the United States. That is still in place. Is it a reasonable parallel to make, do you think? I think it's an entirely um, reasonable parallel to... Uh, to make the U.S. Uh, still has the uh, the Patriot Act in place, as you said, uh, but also what we have come to discover um, from you know leaks like from Mr. Edward Snowden and and, and the others about um, the, the kind of uh, dramatic uh, invasion of of the privacy and uh, lives of ordinary American citizens um, coming out of um, the Iraq War, and so. Yes, I think I think that one has to keep these things in in perspective. We are watching the the response, of course, here in Africa very closely. We're watching the response in in Europe and in the West very closely, and we are now also watching the response in Asia very closely. And we've been speaking to some colleagues there, Singapore, Malaysia, etc., and they they all all emphasize one thing. You know, they say, don't don't securitize the response to the pandemic. Uh, The best way to deal with it is with a population that trusts uh, what leaders are saying. So you must communicate very carefully, very strategically uh, to maintain their, uh, their confidence and their trust. You know, when you talk about the Asia model, you know, the debate over here is raging between China and China's, how China locked down. I mean, would you be talking about, say, the Singapore and uh, Korea model or which was a combination of an invasion of uh, personal privacy, but yet with the compliance of of the population or the sort of more dramatic lockdown, uh, also quite securitized in China? The sense that I have gotten is that uh, in both Singapore and and Taiwan, um, though the measures that have been uh, implemented have been very restrictive in terms of personal freedoms, um, the level of securitization isn't that intense. But there is nothing more impressive to watch than the Prime Minister of Singapore when he pops up once every four or something days and just speaks to the Singaporean people um, in all the different languages of, 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 of the island and explains that we are now going to do ABC. He explains it in great detail. Uh, that's the prime minister and those press conferences last you know, one and a half hours. So that's a huge element uh, of it. Obviously in China, which is a very different, uh, much more authoritarian uh, system, you know, there's no ex- not much explaining being done. It's clamped down, but um, it's it's it's, a, it's you know it's an authoritarian regime with a history of delivering, and so uh, 
where where as I said where there is public trust, then it is possible to implement uh, the kind of um, measures we've seen work so well in South Korea and and um, Singapore. Can we just, John, do a gear change and maybe move on to news that we have, say, in South Africa, some 800 billion rand being pushed into the economy and obviously the implications that that has has for corruption and what, uh, if anything, that you are seeing in the coronavirus and what the implications might be for the battle against corruption? I think that... um all disasters, uh, whether it's a pandemic or an earthquake or, or it's a volcano exploding, which requires a massive um, response uh, with huge public procurement, you're going to have lots of corruption. I'm sorry, it's just it comes to the territory, you know. And if you look at the, the United Nations and the difficulties it has had with corruption, they're usually around those kind of massive responses where you're making emergency procurements. You know, you really can't follow the rules. You just need to. So uh, this is a risky time um, in terms of because it's huge, huge sums of money that need to be spent fairly uh, quickly to very desperate sections of the population. And, um, you know, and it, again, it is here. Not only um, this becomes no longer uh, so much of uh, it's, it's a law enforcement issue, but one of what kind of culture can can leaders uh implore people to, to to adopt with a challenge that confronts everybody, then you can deal with some of the huge corruption risks that are very, very clearly there by uh, through cultural uh, uh, measures. Do you mean social sanctions? It's, it's, it's social sanctions that can, can apply. And you've also got to draw a very clear distinction between incompetence and corruption. And uh, the third category is just low state capacity, where you know South Africa is quite different. I mean, if if you if you slammed a uh, hundred million dollars into many governments, you know, in amongst the poorer you know parts of the world, and asked them to you know to disperse it to the poor very quickly. It would just be difficult. Just you know, what 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 are the mechanisms? So there'll be leakages and slippages, you know, in, in, in that kind of effort. So yes, big corruption risk. But this example of shaming, John, is 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 really interesting. We've seen it borne out. I mean, it's almost it's a small example, but this idea of shaming is really pertinent because um, there is a, a pharmacy company called Dischem here in South Africa. It's been charged by the Competition Commission here for inflating prices, inflating price of face mask when. Prices were raised by about 260%. I say it's small fry. It's not the millions and billions of rand that we're seeing, but it does send an important message out, doesn't it? Exactly. You, you've said it. That, that, that's, what, that's, that's, that's an ideal example of, of when there's a sense within society that, hey, we are all in this. And, you know, so the competition authority, you know, Perhaps under different circumstances may not have picked up on that because they'd have been frying bigger fish. But at the current time, anybody who's doing a bit of price gouging around um, what is needed, you know, in terms of masks and and, and other, uh, you know, PPEs and the like, um, is not viewed upon, viewed in the in, in the best of light. It doesn't matter how how established uh, and accomplished you are as a private sector actor, John. 
always a pleasure. Honestly, it's lovely to have you here on The Ark Insider. Thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. And I hope you'll be a regular guest on the podcast. I'm very, very happy to. Thanks, thanks, Dara. And we can actually pin you down because you're very, you're quite elusive normally. We've got you cornered. I came from the US and the UK when I then came to Kenya. So I went straight into self-imposed quarantine for. And uh, what's really amusing is just watching um, people's hair growing. <laughs> the beards, <laughs> the hair. Physical distancing means you can't go to the barber and uh, hairdresser. Never mind the food um, shops. In many countries. Get a leg wax and your hair cut. Yes. <laughs> Straight away. <laughs> Tara, that was really interesting, but we're running out of time. We've got to wrap up. But it's great to talk to you once again on the Ark Insider. Did you find that interesting? Absolutely. As I said, John has got such a fabulous way of uh, articulating complex uh, issues very straightforwardly. So I absolutely loved hearing his views on those two important subjects. Well, Tara, we'll do it again in a week's time. Great to talk to you. Stay safe. Look forward to it next week too, Karen. Thank you very much. That's it for the ARC Insider. If you're interested, Tara's team at ARC produces a daily chronology of events across the region, which you can sign up for at info at Consulting. That's all one word, dot com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know at the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Goodbye.